Yeah, I can sing a little bit, I guess. Or maybe I'll just like sway and chant. Let's see how it takes you. All right, I'm ready. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she (laughs) saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Beautiful. Yeah, can't even, I'm not even going to redo that because that was a little ditty. Just a little ditty I wanted to tell y'all. I'm Mm -hmm. sure everyone has heard that little poem, nursery song haiku no haiku. it's not a haiku i think i read somewhere it's like a doggerly or something i don't know what that is i've never heard of that it's technically not a nursery it's a form of something else um okay <laughs> i'm no poet but this little rhyme is inaccurate the bordens received only 29 wax not the 81 suggested by the rhyme above but the popularity of the poem is a testament to the public's fascination with the 1893 murder trial of Lizzie Borden. The source of that fascination lies in the almost unimaginable brutal nature of this crime, you know, given the sex, background, and age of the defendant. Or it could lie in the jury's acquittal of Lizzie in the face of prosecution, evidence that most historians today still find compelling. And with that, we would love to welcome you guys to our two-part season finale. Oh. Oh. We were on different courses. Yeah, okay. Of Killer Babes. Podcast. That's us. I'm Katie. And I'm Kirby. And guys, we have a treat in store for you. A two-part. Two-parter about, um, this is going to be my favorite thing we've ever done. I think so, too. I'm I'm captivated. I'm I'm great. I'm sweating. I'm sweating too, but that's because it's not in here. <laughs> but also because I'm amped. Lizzie Borden gets me amped. Guys, this is going to be great. Uh, we had to start off with the rhyme, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, how else are we going to start off? You I know? don't know if I was in the right pitch, so please be gentle on me. No criticisms. <laughs> I am an aspiring Somebody singer. please remake it. Remix <laughs> it. Put it on YouTube. Some dubstep. <laughs> Yes, but that's just a little background info for you guys to give you guys the setup of how we are going to approach this. Take it away. We did, as we told you guys we would, we did stay in the Lizzie Borden house last night, folks. We are fresh, fresh off Lizzie's bed. We are. As of a couple of hours. But we're not going to get into it yet. We're going to intersperse some of the things, but for the main part, we're going to wait until part two, so you have to listen to our second one. You gotta listen to both, guys. We're gonna give you um, the background of it in this episode, the entire case. I mm-hmm. mean, this a lot, it's thrill. It's very, very interesting. Very. I'm excited to tell you guys what happened, tell you our opinions, and then part two, we're gonna give you more of... Our experiences there, mm-hmm. um, what we saw, what what happened, um, more about the house, more about the tour that we went on. And some insider info because mm-hmm. there's things that were not anywhere. We could not find it anywhere that we learned on the tour that we went on, which is pretty cool. Yes. Yep. Definitely got that insider info. Shout out to the Lizzie Borden house. They did an amazing job. Book your stay now uh-huh. before you listen to this because it's probably going to be booked after you listen to this. Yeah. okay love that shooting high all right well it's gonna we have a lot of info i'm not gonna lie it's gonna be a long one and it's gonna be meaty and i know that's how you guys like it so Mm -hmm. i think we should jump right into the background i think so too okay okay great 
Starting with Andrew Jackson Borden, he was born on September 22nd, 1822 in Fall River, Massachusetts, to his lovely parents, Abraham Bowen Borden and Phoebe Borden. Apparently, one of his parents was a big Andrew Jackson stan. <laughs> Andrew Jackson Borden. <laughs> his dad. <laughs> they were the original stans. Yeah, I guess so. I haven't met many stans, but I guess they are one of them. <laughs> His dad was a fish peddler, and both of his parents were wealthy-ish, influential people in the then-prosperous mill town of Fall River. We talked a bit about the rich history of Fall River in our sixth episode, which was all about the Fall River satanic killings. It was a little bit of a different time zone, but that was a great one, guys, and it took place way far away of the era after Lizzie Borden. It'll help provide some background knowledge on the history of Fall River, though. Okay, now back to the story. Andrew was born of money. He did grow up in modest surroundings, but he himself struggled financially while he was a young lad. We all know that wealthy guy, you know, who wants to teach his kids the meaning of earning a dollar. I did not grow up that way, (laughs) but I wish I had it. I can picture that. Like, the guy that, like, has a lot of money, but he, like, won't give anything to his kids because he's like, you've got to learn how to earn it like I did. Yeah. Okay. So Andrew worked hard, and he eventually prospered as a carpenter, and then he moved on to be a partner with Frank Almy in the Casket Company, or Almy. Either way, I think we saw that name in the graveyard, the last name. They sold cranes and patented casket burial cases. He then went on to become a very successful property developer and owner. He owned a considerable amount of commercial property and was the president of the Union Savings Bank and a director of the Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company. At the time of his death, his estate was valued at $300,000, which in 2018 is equivalent to $8,370,000. Mm. And I'm sure it's gone up since 2019. I don't know Since that. 2018? Yeah, it's been one year, so it's probably gone up a mm-hmm. dollar. Maybe. dollar. <laughs> dollar. He was supposedly known for his clothing. Summer or winter, he could be seen in his black, double-breasted Prince Albert in string tie. I think that name's supposed to mean yes! something, but to me, it means nothing. Urban Dictionary, I guess. <laughs> I don't even know if anything would come up. I mean, I'm not trying to start rumors, but Andrew Jackson had a Prince Albert, okay? Mm-hmm. He was a baller. Mm-hmm. He loved money, worked insane hours. He worked really hard. He worked like 14 hours a day. So it's not like he just came upon money. He did really work for his money. He was an eighth generation high society man. But people remember him as a tight ass, especially to today. The Borden family was religious. They belonged to the Central Congregational Church. It's very important to note here that while Andrew Borden was portrayed as frugal and stern, we think he was like actually okay. (laughs) We think he was, like, kind of chill. Yeah, because, okay, he did give his daughters cash, and he let them travel to insane places for a really long time. Uh, So there's instances that we'll mention on later, but just let it know. We're trying to be impartial here, and we're also trying to be very accurate. Because I think a lot of things that you read, I mean, they, and I think this makes sense because you're trying to give a reason to the crime, but I think a lot of people make him out to be, like, this terrible, terrible father, and it's like, we don't know, okay? It's 2019. This happened in, what, 1890? Mm-hmm. So we don't know. But there are accounts of him, like, being frugal, but yeah. also, like, spoiling his loved one. Maybe he didn't spoil himself. Maybe he 
had one old mm-hmm. cult that he wore all the time. But, like, he paid for his daughters to go on vacations all the time. That's a known thing. Yeah, known thing that she – Lizzie traveled Europe for, like, 19 weeks. A 19-week vacation. Hello, people. That's – That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> that's what I want. <laughs> yeah. So he might have been frugal, but I also don't think he was, like, a terrible father. Like, didn't give them anything. So. Right. You know. And they do say you don't become wealthy by spending your money. I mean, yeah, that's true. That is a great quote. True. Yeah. So on December 25th, 1845, Andrew Borden, at age 23, married Sarah Anthony Morse, and the two moved into the house on 92nd Street in Fall River, Massachusetts. <laughs> it's like 92nd Street, which is confusing. A little confusing. Yeah. So it should be noted that after 1896, the house number was actually changed to 230. Mm-hmm. So if you're Googling it, Type in 230. The Victorian house was beautiful when I saw it. It was built in 1845 and sold to Andrew Borden, and he actually converted it from a two-family house into a one-family. So that's why the setup of the rooms are really weird. We'll talk about it more, but basically the whole upstairs, because it was renovated and chopped from a two-family, all of the bedrooms are actually like interconnected, conjoined or whatever. So when you walk into one room, you have to like walk into another room to get to like the third room. So yeah, I think we'll go into more detail about like the setup in the next episode, but yes. Yeah. So we just told you we did the tour and we'll talk more about that in the next episode, but the doorknobs and hardware in the house are all original. So when you're going through, mm. you were touching with Lizzie Borden. Yeah, they're like, you're touching the same doorknobs. I'm like, um, that's kind of gross, <laughs> but okay. Yeah, but you're also touching what probably like millions yeah, of other people touch. Exactly. <laughs> so the house is nice. It was located in, you know, a pretty affluent area of the city. It was within walking distance to the factories, which is why Andrew preferred living there because he could just pop in and out of the businesses and check in and he could walk there. It didn't take like... Because he owned a lot of businesses in Fall River, so he needed to constantly check on them. So Mm -hmm. he was in his uh, work area, if you will. However, while it was a nice area, the wealthiest residents of Fall River at the time mostly lived in a more fashionable neighborhood called The Hill. It's like the reality show The Hills, but it's just like The Hill. (laughs) It's just the original. Fall River in 1860. (laughs) It's the original. They should do kind of like a mock parody The Hill. Yeah, I mean, I think that's up to us. I think it would really take off. (laughs) Reportedly, Lizzie and Emma longed to be in this area. Ladies on the hill would throw lavish parties in their giant houses, and anyone who was everyone or anybody. (laughs) They They all, you know, used these parties to find suitors. Uh huh. The olden day Tinder. It is. It's just called meeting them in real life, (laughs) (laughs) it's just called seeing somebody. But, you know, Lizzie and Emma, their house was not, while it was big, it wasn't that big. They weren't in the right location, and it wasn't big enough to throw these lavish parties. So mm-hmm. they missed out on the suitor pool. I'm mm, sure yeah. they were invited, but it's not like they could throw it. So they couldn't, you know, what these ladies were doing, when they were showing off their wealth for suitors. So suitors would say, oh, hell yeah, and get married. So, <laughs> yep. You know, it's unfortunate. Mm. Despite gaining success and becoming wealthy, Andrew, you know, has that stigma of being stingy around town. The Borden house on 2nd Street did not have indoor plumbing or electricity. Although this was pretty commonplace for wealthy people, it's said that, you know, while there's electricity around town, Andrew was just wary of putting it into the house for safety reasons. So it might not have been because he was frugal. It actually just might have been because he was a little scared. I don't know. It could burn your house down or something. Yeah, I get that. That's kind of scary if you've never seen, like, electricity or 
whatever before. Mm. So who knows? I feel like cheap or scared. We can relate with solar panels. Like some people are super wary of putting solar panels on their house because it could burn down their whole house. So I think that's kind of like... Yeah. I mean, I think it's even scarier, though, to not have any electricity and then all of a sudden being like, yeah, if you flip the switch, like, (laughs) there's wires that send current of electricity and you're like, what? Mm, Yeah, I guess we can't really relate. Yeah. But anyway... With no plumbing or electricity, they still managed to make babies. Hell yeah. Super gross and unsanitary, but that's the 1800s, am I right? Yeah, you are. They gave birth (laughs) to a lovely daughter, Emma Lenora Borden, on March 1st, 1851. They then gave birth to another daughter, Alice Esther Borden, in 1856, who sadly died at the age of two. And on July 19th, 1860, they had another daughter, Lizzie Andrew Borden. Mm, My girl! Which, girl. Okay, so her middle name was his name. Yes. That's pretty crazy. He didn't do his first daughter. He didn't do his second daughter. It's kind of interesting that he did his third. Kind of, yeah, that's true. It's kind of weird. I mean, I don't know what... Yeah, I don't know who Lenore or Esther is. I'm sure they're family members. But, like, come on. Andrew? Lizzie Andrew? I mean, I don't know. It's kind of cool now, I guess. He wanted a strong middle name. I All see right. it. I get it. So, tragedy struck the family on March 26th. 1865, when beloved mother Sarah Borden died. This loss had a huge impact on both sisters. Emma was 12 at the time, and Lizzie would have just been about two years old at the time. So really, she didn't really have any um, memories of her biological mother. Andrew Borden bounced back and remarried just three years later to Abby Durfee Gray, who was just 37 at the time. And that puts Andrew at about 43 at this point. So older, but honestly not that weird. 37, 43. Could be much weirder in the 1800s. I just have the song stuck in my head. Last night took a nail, but tonight I bounced back. That was what what Andrew Borden was singing. This is what we would put in our parody of the time period, The Hill. He'd just go around singing that to himself. Oh, man, it's kind of sad. Okay, continue. Okay. Abby was considered an old maid when they remarried, or when she got married. She was respected and of high social status, but was often seen as the daughter of a pushcart peddler. I don't know what that means. To marry up like she did was... (laughs) (laughs) I said it like I did, but I don't. (laughs) To marry up like she did... mm -hmm, She got Andrew. Um, It was unexpected, and many whispered on the street that the marriage only happened because Andrew was looking for a housekeeper and someone to raise his daughters. Unfortunate. Yeah. The relationship between Lizzie and her stepmother was a mystery, but many have claimed that it was never great. This is a huge arc in the story, guys. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's reported that just two years into the new marriage, Lizzie stopped calling her mother. Reportedly, Lizzie started calling her Mrs. Borden and doubted whether the relationship was legit. Basically, she thought Abby was a gold digger and was only with her father for the monies. And we don't know if that's a quote. That's like allegedly, supposedly... What we've heard through the grapevine, passed down through history and trial. Correct. This might be a thing, is basically what we're saying. Um, Lizzie definitely looked to her older sister, though, Emma, as a mother figure. A lot of people said that at the time, her sister was really her only friend, which is also speculation, but she did seem to spend a lot of time in that house. So Yeah, she has other friends because they come out of the woodwork, but... Um, That's true. This is like her bestie. This is her bestie. I mean, she basically raised her um, from the age of two. Yeah. The Bordens also had a live-in maid, whose name was Bridget Sullivan, also known as Maggie. She was a 25-year-old Irish immigrant who started working for the Bordens in 1889. Uh, now, kind of a sad fact here. You might be wondering why she had the nickname Maggie, even though her name was Bridget, because that doesn't really... Yeah, where do you get that? 
I mean, I don't think that's a thing anyway. Maybe I don't think so either. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, it's actually because the Bordens had a previous maid whose name was Maggie. And then when Bridget came and started working for them, they were like, eh, I don't really want to learn a new name. Like, we'll just keep calling her Maggie. If that doesn't paint a picture of them, I don't know what does. And the tour guide told us that. So, like, that's kind of legitimate, I guess. But that's what she said. And it makes sense because where else would you get Maggie from? It's not like Maggie would be Margaret or... Well, you know how, like, people say, like, Dick for Richard? It's like, where do they get that from? I don't know, but that that's like a known one. Like nobody goes around with the name Bridget. Like, eh, call me Maggie. You know, I've uh, yeah, never met I know that. you're right. Yeah, so it might be a legitimate story. Poor Bridget. So we're just gonna call her from Bridget from here on out because that's her God given name, probably. Yes. And I mean, I feel kind of bad. Yeah, that's what we're gonna do from here on out. Yeah. Bridge. I can call it Bridge. I guess. Whatever. Bridget. Are we trying to give her a nickname right now? <laughs> no. You know what? You're right. Let's we'll just, just stick to Bridget. Bridget. Um, so Bridget would later give a statement that the two sisters rarely had rarely had meals with their parents. Family dynamic is almost always depicted as tumultuous, and the family reported had ar- reportedly had arguments over property inheritance quite often. A little bit about Lizzie here, our girl Lizzie. Due to her family's status in society, Lizzie knew her position well. She was described as the typical high society young debutante. She was a member of various clubs and was an active member of her church. In many of her organizations, she held a leadership role and was often the secretary or treasurer, probably due to her father's wealth. Despite her high status, Lizzie did remain unmarried throughout her entire life. This was pretty unusual considering her position. You'd think that men would come flocking after a young rich girl. You'd think. But there could have been a couple reasons why not. Um, First, she was not considered a beautiful girl and listen that's not me there are literally articles that describe her as like average looking as the nicest Mm -hmm. that they say which Mm -hmm. is like really it's not us guys this is legit coming from many multiple sources yeah hashtag f your beauty standards um yeah she was often described as homely whatever that's just what they said Two, she represented her father and she wasn't really given much freedom at the house as what it seems like from everything we know she may have craved a little bit more money and power but she wasn't really given any um which we said earlier this is technically an exaggeration because her father did give her stuff i mean he did let her go to london what was it london for 19 weeks or europe europe yeah so i mean she definitely had money but maybe she kind of felt bogged down by her father's um power in that house She also could have just been stuck between a rock and a hard place. For those acceptable to her, she was unacceptable. For those who would take her, her father may have viewed as inferior and maybe chased them away, calling them fortune hunters. Who knows? So while Lizzie dreamed of the extravagant parties that her fellow elite young socialites were attending up on the hill in the Riv, she was stuck attending church functions with her father, who may have kept a short leash on her. I mean, again, this is speculation, but um, this could have been the reason why she was single. Could have been the reason for some, you know, anger issues. Who knows? Resentment. Resentment. That's what I was looking for. On June 24th, 1891, there was a daytime robbery of cash and jewelry in the Borden household. Apparently about 50 bucks, which was probably a lot at that time. Mm-hmm. Some of Abby's jewelry, jewelry, jewelry that belonged to her mother and some trolley tickets that Mr. Borden had received as a gift all went missing. 
None of the other jewelry was taken, and nothing else in the house was missing or disturbed. The location that was robbed was, uh, it was a small room connected to the master bedroom that was Abby and Andrew's, and the small room that was connected to it was Abby's, like, dressing room slash Andrew's office, and there was a safe in there, so that's where they kept their jewelry and cash. Emma, Lizzie, and Bridget were all home at the time. Lizzie had been accused of shoplifting by a local merchant earlier, so she was a prime suspect. In fact, around town, it was a pretty known thing at the time that Lizzie did her share of shoplifting. She was caught shoplifting multiple times at McWhirr's shop in Fall River. The workers there were told that if Lizzie ever came in and stole something to just take note of it so they could bill her father, um, bill her father Andrew later for it, all surrounding Fall River stores took note and Lizzie had ongoing credit with all of the shopkeepers. Um, but I, we need to make a point here because, Mm -hmm. um, that's what a lot of the articles we read were saying. And like, I watched a documentary that said that, but then when we were at the tour, I asked her about that and she kind of clarified that, um, it was actually a pretty common thing at that time for like rich kids. Like basically all the store owners or people that worked in the store knew who the rich people were and they knew who to credit for like anything that they would get from the store right so it was actually well what she was saying anyway it was like a known thing that if lizzie came in and took something that they would just write it down and charge it to andrew and like it was not considered shoplifting Mm -mm. so that might be the case it might not be that she was shoplifting we might just be giving this girl a terrible name well she already has one (laughs) we're just i know it's true we're just like making it worse well can't really get much worse than it is but yeah i don't think so (laughs) But it it did stick. It was a big rumor that she was a shoplifter. And a lot of people just thought she was shoplifting because she felt neglected within the family. Who knows? Well, this is true or not. Um, They did keep note of her purchases. But, okay, so back to the stolen trolley tickets. Apparently, these were a gift to Mr. Borden. And they were personalized. So the police actually found them fairly quickly because apparently some local children had them. And they were caught trying to use them. And they were like, hey, these aren't yours. So when they asked where they got them from, they just told them that Lizzie gave them to us. The police never did apprehend Lizzie or anyone for stealing from the Bordens, but this incident did spark the Bordens to tighten down the hatches, so to speak. They began keeping all their doors locked, barricading themselves from the evil of the outside world. But many think Andrew Borden knew it was Lizzie. When he was home, he would lock the house and keep the one lock for the house right on the mantle, almost goading Lizzie with the message, I know it was you. Bitch, I dare you to try to do it again. Probably not in those words. That's from the hills. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) So they locked themselves in. What they did not consider was perhaps more evil would come from inside of the house. Dun, dun, dun. Foreshadowing. Well, you guys already know what happened anyway. <laughs> well, if you don't, sorry. <laughs> Spoiler alert. We're going to tell you. That's what the episode's about. Now, let's go back to the summer of 1892, which was really the beginning of an end for the Borden family. It was summer in the city and things were heating up, and that includes the tensions that were arising within the family. But, really, honestly, the house was probably a scorcher. (laughs) It was heating up, uh, literally. There was no air conditioning, no high-powered fans. Times were tough, people. Mm -hmm. In an odd twist of fate, the story both begins and ends with a single object, an axe. It all began in May of 1892 when not Lizzie, but 
Andrew Borden took an axe. Hmm. With an axe in hand, he headed out back to the family's barn, where he proceeded to slaughter uh, numerous pigeons. Apparently, Andrew claimed that the pigeons were attracting young kids around the city who just wanted to chase them and hunt them down. So naturally, this was his number one solution. <laughs> However, Lizzie had kind of become enamored with the pigeons at this point. <laughs> Which is like, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think she portrays her as an animal lover. Yeah, you're you know, right, you're kind right. soul. She was an animal lover. Just before their slaughtering, Lizzie had actually built a roost and pen for the pigeons, or pen, I guess, I don't know, pin, pen. Yeah. Perhaps speculation here. She may have named them. Hmm. <laughs> She does have an inclination to naming things. That's true. You'll find out. So, many claim she was very upset with her father after this mass execution of her beloved pigeons. Pigeons. Yes, pigeons. (laughs) But then, on July 12th of 1892, it's reported that the family got into a huge argument and prompted Lizzie and Emma to go on an extended vacation to New Bedford. Now, I'm sure if you ask (laughs) anyone who lived in Fall River right now whether a trip to New Bedford is a vacation, they would laugh in your face. But, you know, who knows? Maybe it was different back then. And uh, we think, or I think, this is my opinion, that New Bedford's kind of doing a little turning point. They've got an awesome art gallery now, smoothie and juice store. And you know what? What? In their day, yeah. New Bedford was like, rich, bitch, because it was Whaling City. Oh, that's true, yeah. So maybe it was a good place for vacation. Maybe they had, like, dope, like, restaurants. Maybe it was popping, because they have some good restaurants popping now. Off. It's just like, it's like five minutes away so it's yeah like it's connected vacation or just like a night out wow. yeah well i guess if they walked there or even took a little trolley it's a little bit longer maybe i don't know it's still yeah, close it's a little close but yeah. anyway city of new bedford today is turning around and maybe back then it was really ritzy yeah nevertheless the girls returned to fall river a week before the murders would actually happen emma returned home but lizzie on the other hand stayed at a local rooming house for four straight days before returning to the house. Perhaps she couldn't bear the thought of being back in a house with those people? Mm. Question mark? What's this big argument all about? Keep in mind the year is like 1892. So at this point, Lizzie's what, 32 years old? Yep. So she's in her early 30s, right? Living with her entire family, including a stepmom that she's not supposedly fond of. And the poor girl can't cop a man. Hey, I feel... <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not you're not 30 and you're not living at home. Oh, that's true. So, and you love your mom, who's not your stepmom. That's Which, true. okay, stepmoms do get a pretty bad rap. I'm that's sorry in the stereotypical world of stepmoms. Yeah, um, we're not making it any better with this story. Mm, I don't know any, and I don't like, know anybody who has had any and have been like, I love my stepmom, so. But you don't know of any, so. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. But I'm thinking of, like, Cinderella, and I yeah, guess that's I know, so not actual. They do get a real bad rap. They do. They're, they're coming off as evil. So maybe, you know, this is perpetuating it, too. Maybe this is kind of, like, an exaggeration of the story. Are we being sexist? Yeah, I think so. Maybe yeah. Abby's, like, great. I feel for Abby. I do. Hmm. I feel for Abby. I feel like she <laughs> didn't get the right marriage. The poor thing. <laughs> she just, like, stumbled into this shithole. Yeah, well, I know she didn't get the right marriage, because I know her ending. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, to sum it up, Lizzie's not doing that she's not, great. She's not on her best life. Mm-mm, she's not living it. <laughs> and to top it off, the already, you know, kind of terrible summer the family was having, there was major disputes about owning property. Sources say about five years before the mur- murder, Andrew had gifted a portion of his real estate to part of Abby's family. Apparently, he gave a house to his new wife's sister. Abby's sister was about to be evicted, so he deeded it to Abby, who then let her sister stay there rent-free. Does that make sense? 
That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. Abby's sister was about to get evicted, so Andrew was like, oh, you're my wife. I should help your sister. I'll buy the house for her, basically. Mm-hmm, but he gave it to his wife, who then gave it to her sister. Yeah. So that was very generous of him, actually. Yeah. Let it be known that he was not frugal when it came to family. Well, step family. We know wish. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was his wife now. Yeah. Emma and Lizzie were obviously both pretty salty about that. Mm-hmm. High salt content. Mm-hmm. No, high sodium content. Mm. Yeah. They then demanded their father give them their fair share. Why did Abby and her sister get property? So their father gave them a rental property that he owned, the one that they had been living in until their biological mother died. Technically, he didn't give it to them. He sold it to them for like a dollar. Um, so before the murders, the Borden sisters bought the rental property for just one dollar. Mm-hmm. I don't even know like the translation, but it had to be what like ten bucks back then or something. <laughs> like me now. Yeah, I don't know. That's crazy. Ugh, that's so crazy. Okay, calm down. Anyway, it's from their father. Yeah, like, it's like it's so nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. And it's again a nice thing that he did. Uh huh. But, you know, they then realized that houses need maintenance and this house needed to be upkept and they didn't want to keep up with it. And they didn't want to spend their money on a house because they were using it as a rental property. Yeah. They realized it was just hard work. So they got an appraisal and sold the property back to him for $5,000. Yep. Now that's what I call business women. But let it be known, Andrew did not stiff his daughters. No. I mean, yeah, that whole transaction is a little odd to me. Like, it seems like he was being nice to sell it to them for a dollar. Well, I guess and legally. And he was probably like, hey, girls, like, here, like, go do your own, like, business. Like, I'll start you off, but, like, mm-hmm. you're going to be running the rental properties. That's what it sounds like. Um, but they were basically saying, like, any money they made from that, they were just putting right back into renovations. So mm-hmm. they were like, we don't want it anymore. And and then he bought it from them for 5000 which is a profit of $4,999. To the cent. Yep. Crazy, crazy. On the morning of August 2nd, 1892, Abby and Andrew Borden both awoke with a stomach sickness. They had kind of been feeling ill for like a week or two now, but it was this day that Abby decided to visit the local doctor, Dr. Bowen, and told him she thought she might have been poisoned by the milk that was being delivered. Kind of a crazy jump to just go straight to a doctor and say, I think I'm being poisoned. (laughs) Somebody's poisoning my milk. Yeah. So he dismisses her and says he believes that maybe a more frequent market trip would do the trick. Yeah, I think that basically means, like, your milk's going bad, lady. Like, go get more more often, right? It does, yeah. Because they didn't have the best refrigerators or freezers back then. So time and temp was I a mean, little I mean, they didn't wonky. have a refrigerator. They just had, like, a box. They put yeah, like an ice in. box. Yeah. Which uh, just goes up and down. It fluctuates. Yeah. And reportedly, because Andrew was a little frugal, but hey, who isn't? Wanted to eat all the food, you know, waste not. Oh, I get that, honey. Andrew, mm-hmm. I'm right there with you. I hate wasting food. It pisses me off. I do too. I will probably like binge on the food I that I have. I eat stuff that I'm like, this is really questionable, but I'm like, I bought it. So it's con- I'm consuming it. <laughs> yeah. I freeze a lot of stuff too, but they didn't have freezers. Right. The next morning on August 3rd, 1892, Lizzie reportedly and unsuccessfully tried to buy poison from Eli Benz at D.R. Smith's drugstore. She walked in and said she needed 10 cents worth of prussic acid. Any chemists out there? Probably. Well, then you know prussic acid is hydrogen cyanide, HCN. It's colorless, but extremely poisonous. The drugstore promptly denied her request, so she just Did you have to Google that, or did you just know that? 
That was in the tour. I know. I'm oh, just kidding. okay. <laughs> I was like, uh, you were there with me. And she said that. <laughs> anyway, on the night of August 3rd, the night before the murders, Emma and Lizzie's deceased mother's brother, their biological uncle on the mother's side, John Vinicum Morse, visited their home. He was supposedly invited by Andrew to discuss, quote, business matters by a letter, which coincidentally was lost during the trial and there's no copy. But Lizzie comes home, right? She hears her uncle's voice in the dining room and she hasn't seen him for years. And then she just heads to bed. She doesn't even say hi, nothing. She claims she heard him but didn't see him in trial. But it's speculated that the two men may have had an argument regarding a property transfer. Lizzie, in the meantime, visits Alice Russell, a friend, and talks about household activities. She brings up that she fears being poisoned, that her father has enemies, and that she's seen suspicious characters around the family's house. She said, quote, I'm afraid but that someone will do something, end quote. All right, so next day, y'all, it's a hot August 4th of 1892 at 92 2nd Street. <laughs> That's kind of funny. In Fall River, Massachusetts. Um, so the morning begins. It's about 7 a.m. Uh, apparently, Abby, Andrew, and John are early risers. Um, they head to breakfast together. And again, reminder, John is the girl's uncle, Andrew's brother-in-law, Sarah's brother, who died. Lizzie was home, but she was not joining the family for their morning meal. Apparently, her absence at meals was quite common. That's reported a lot, that she did not attend a lot of meals with the rest of the family. She was 32. I guess we could say that she could do what she wants. Yeah. Emma was not home. She had been uh, staying at a friend's house in Fairhaven. After breakfast, John and Andrew went into the sitting room while Abby cleaned up the kitchen because that's a woman's job. (laughs) Sorry. John left the house around 8.45 a.m. to go visit relatives on the other side of town. That's what he said he was doing. A few minutes after 9 a.m., Andrew also got up and left the house, and he said he was going to attend to some business at his banks, which was very common for him to do at this time in the morning. He also took some letters with him that Lizzie asked him if he could mail for her. Abby had asked Bridget to wash the first floor windows outside, and then Abby went upstairs to the guest bedroom to make the bed. This was the last time anyone would see Abby Borden alive. So now, Andrew Borden is returning to the house from his business matters. He returns home around 10.45 a.m., which we've heard from a few people that he usually spends longer, like, working on his businesses or going to visit his business, whatever he does on his business trips in the morning. Um, But because they were all feeling so violently ill, he cut his visit short that morning. So he was only gone for, like, an hour or so or an hour or two when normally people would expect that he'd be gone for a few hours. So this was kind of um, a rare occurrence on this morning. But So he tried to get in, but he actually couldn't get in at first because the front door to the house was bolted shut. And Bridget, the maid, apparently heard him like making a fuss outside. He couldn't get in. So she came over and she let him um, into the door. As she was opening the door, Bridget actually claims that she heard Lizzie chuckling behind her on the staircase, which is right behind the front door. Because she swore in Gaelic. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so that, yes, I thought that was funny. The tour guide was telling us how this is a very, like, important note in the trial for several reasons we'll go over. But Bridget claims when she was opening the door, she heard Lizzie laughing on the stairs behind her. 
And she remembers that because she said that she had like done some Gaelic swears because she was like, ah, like this man can't get in the door like shit. Gotta get up. Whatever you say in Gaelic, she did. And apparently Lizzie thought that was funny. So she chuckled. Yeah, because she was fun. There were three locks on the front door and she had unlocked the first two. And then she like fumbled with the third one. And obviously it's stressful because you're like, you're not master, but boss, I guess, is on the other side. You're yeah. living boss. And you're like, I can't open the door. And then you just go. Fuck, in Gaelic. Also, you're a maid whose name's Bridget, but they call you Maggie. <laughs> so, like, you know what? She's probably just frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> and she was trying to take a nap. She was. She was tired. I get it. Yeah. So, when Andrew entered, Lizzie came down to greet him. Hello, father. Probably something of the sorts. I just made Do they up. have accents? <laughs> I don't know. Hello. Hello. No, they're not Dutch. <laughs> Andrew asked her where his wife was, and Lizzie told him that she thought Abby had received a message and left the house to go see a friend. So Andrew went to lie down in the sitting room on the sofa. And Bridget said she also wanted to lie down, take a little rest. And then Bridget says she awoke from her rest when she heard the bell at City Hall ring. And it would ring at exactly 11 o'clock. Then she heard a cry from Lizzie that broke the silence. And Lizzie shouted, Maggie, come down. Come down quick. Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Yikes. Um, so that was a few minutes after 11, according to Bridget's testimony. A call to the police station was made at 11.15 that morning. The police were immediately dispatched. When they arrived at the scene, they found Andrew Borden lying slain on the sofa. The body, quote, hacked almost beyond recognition of Andrew Borden had been covered up. Dozens of policemen paraded in and out of the house searching for evidence of an intruder, because that's going to be your first thought. A neighbor, Adelaide Churchill, heard what was happening and came over to comfort Lizzie. Lizzie said that she had been in the barn looking for irons, which were sinkers for an upcoming fishing trip. Like sinkers for, you know, like on a fishing line, that kind of thing. Adelaide and Bridget, in the midst of the chaos, walked up the front stairs of the Borden house. They noticed the guest room door was ajar, and then they pretty much immediately saw Abby's feet poking out from behind the bed in the guest bedroom. They entered the room and circled to the other side of the bed. On the floor lay the body of Abby Borden in an unusual position. She was laying on her stomach, face down. There was a significant amount of blood all around her head. Interestingly, investigators found that Abby's body was cold, whereas Andrew's body... Um, had been discovered still warm. This indicated to them that Abby was killed earlier, probably at least 90 minutes earlier than her husband. Now, to demonstrate to you just how long ago this was, the doctors performed the post-mortem exam on the bodies in the dining room, but not on the table that they ate their meals on, as many accounts say. No, 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 no. And also, I think sometimes if you do the tour, they, like, show you bodies on the kitchen The reenactment, yeah. The reenactment, yeah. But that's not quite so. There's this thing called a coroner's board, um, which they used. It's like a board with a bunch of holes in it. It's almost It almost looks like it's like... Um, like wall art, wall decor. Yeah. Like a screen, like, but with holes through it. Mm-hmm. I'm, not lattice. Um, kind of what I'm thinking of, but no. Like oh. those chairs. You know those chairs, those wicker yeah. chairs? Yeah, yeah, wicker. Where yeah, where wicker. there's holes in them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same material, same thing. Yeah, same it's like a wicker board, but it's not even a solid. It's got a million holes in it, and it's tiny. And yeah, I don't understand how they. I really on that. don't because they had one there when we went and we saw it, and we were like, "What?" 
Um, but whatever. So they pushed this thing. Well, they pushed the dining room table up against the wall to make room. And then they did the autopsy on the corner table thing. So while the doctors performed their exam, Lizzie is interrogated by Deputy Marshal Fleet. She's noted as speaking in a detached manner. And Fleet said that when he called Abby her mother, she was very quick to correct him. She is not my mother. She is my stepmother. Under the headline, Shocking Crime, a venerable citizen and his aged wife hacked to pieces in their home. First of all, his aged wife? Like, she was younger than him. (laughs) Why did they say that? I don't know. Weird. Okay, sorry. So they said, Shocking Crime, a venerable citizen and his aged wife hacked to pieces in their home. (laughs) Why is he vulnerable? I don't know. I don't understand why that headline is so terrible. I don't know what venerable means. A great deal of respect because of age, wisdom, or character. So he gets this amazing title. Like He's wise. Yeah. She's just old. He's hella well-aged <laughs> citizen, but his ugly, old-ass <laughs> wife was hacked to pieces. Jesus Christ, that's terrible, huh? That <laughs> almost seems like a joke. Is that even real? I don't know, but we're putting that in our parody episode of The Hills. We'll just You're do, right. like, breaking news. <laughs> You're right. Oh, my God. Whatever. Okay. Sexist. So this was in the Fall River Herald News, and they reported that the news of the Borden murders spread like wildfire and hundreds poured into 2nd Street, where for years Andrew J. Borden and his wife had lived in happiness. The Herald reporter who visited the crime scene described the face of the man as sickening. The dead man. Yeah, obviously, not Andrew. Not someone else's <laughs> Not face. just a random guy. Just Andrew like, would Andrew's, never be sickening. Like, hacked off head sickening. Mm-hmm. So the newspaper quoted that over the left temple, a wound six by four inches wide had been made as if it had been pounded with the dull edge of an axe. The left eye had been dug out and a cut extended the length of the nose. The face was hacked to pieces and the blood had covered the man's shirt. Despite the gore, the room was in order and there were no signs of a scuffle of any kind. The Fall River Herald reported that the initial speculation as to the identity of the murderer centered on a Portuguese laborer who had visited the Borden home earlier in the morning and asked for his wages due to him, only to be told by Andrew Borden that he had no money and to call later. (laughs) That's going to be my new saying. I got no money. Call me later. (laughs) Wait, I didn't think they had phones. Oh, oh ring call mail? just means like like mail me. Call me is actually like come to my house and telegraph like, call me. me. Like come and talk to me, I guess. I don't know. Whatever. Um the story added that medical evidence suggested that Abby Borden was killed by a tall man who struck the woman from behind. I don't know how you can get gender I get how you can get height. Another editorial in the Fall River paper citizen uh, criticizes the police for inaction. Also, I mean, it's 18-something, and we (laughs) did actually, maybe this is a good time to say this, the fun, really fun fact, I thought, was that this um, crime, the tour guide was saying that this is the first time in America, second time in in world history, Mm -hmm. first time in U.S. history Mm -hmm. that crime scene photos were taken of a crime. Yeah. I was, like, kind of blown away by that. Yep. They didn't, obviously, they didn't know what the hell they were doing. They fumbled all over the crime scenes. They They thought there was an intruder. So they were walking everywhere trying to look for people. So they pretty much ruined all the evidence. They, like, physically moved the bed in the guest bedroom to get a better picture of her, which was, like, you can't just, like, rearrange the room to get a better picture of the the 
crime, but whatever. And like, she showed us a photograph of the police camera taking a picture of Abby Borden and like in the background is a mirror so you could see the police camera. And it was Mm -hmm. actually really cool. That was cool. Yeah. And the first, this was the first case in US history, but second in the world. And the first one was Jack the Ripper. They said that they used police cameras, which is really, really cool. Yeah. Fun fact. Fun, Mm -hmm. fun fact. Two days after the murder, a funeral service for Andrew and Abby was held at the Borden home. The papers had also begun reporting evidence that 33-year-old Lizzie Borden might be involved with her parents' murders. Most significantly, Eli Bentz, a clerk at the S.R. Smith's drug store in Fall River, told police that Lizzie had visited the store the day before and attempted to purchase that prussic acid. He told the police that she told him she needed it to, quote, put a seal skin cape, put it on a seal skin cape. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> she was denied. Put it on a seal skin cape. That sounds like a lyric. A story in the Boston Daily Globe reported rumors that, quote, Lizzie and her stepmother never got along together peacefully and that for a considerable time back, they have not spoken, end quote. But it should be noted that family members insisted that the relationship between the two women were normal. The Boston Herald, meanwhile, viewed Lizzie as, quote, from this consensus of opinion, it can be said, in Lizzie Borden's life, there is not one unmatingly, unmaidenly, nor a single deliberately unkind act, end quote. These old-timey sayings are a little tongue twistery. <laughs> getting caught up there. Yeah, getting confuzzled. Police came to their conclusion that the murders must have been committed by someone within the Borden home. Wait, I just need to say this one thing. Okay. I was watching a documentary and they basically they said the same thing, but they put it as no woman could no. Women were delicate flowers that could never commit such kind acts. I mean crude acts. And I thought that was funny. Yeah, super accurate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we just keep perpetuating that, they'll never yes, find girls, us. They'll never know it was us. Mm-hmm. We're delicate flowers. Oh, not me. I'm a flower. <laughs> I wonder what kind of flower would it be? Think about that. So, okay. <laughs> so the police were super puzzled by the lack of blood anywhere except on the bodies of the victims and their inability to uncover any obvious murder weapon. Which the photos show, like, no blood splatter anywhere besides the victim's face and cat, like, where they were laying, like, the floor, the couch. Yeah, I'm still very confused by that. I don't know how to answer my own question, but guys, why is there no blood on the wall? Like, did I just miss that somewhere? Is there an obvious reason for that? Can somebody let me know? I'm freaking out about the blood. Okay, so we're puzzled. The police were puzzled. Everyone's puzzled by the lack of blood. If you know why, let us know. Please. Increasing suspicion turned to Lizzie since her older sister Emma was out of the home at the time of the murders. And investigators found it odd that Lizzie knew so little of her stepmother's whereabouts after 9 a.m. Because, remember, according to Lizzie, she had gone, quote, upstairs to put shams on the pillows, end quote. They also found, unconvincingly, that during the 15 minutes in which Andrew Borden was murdered in the living room, Lizzie had gone out to the backyard barn to, quote, look for irons, which are lead sinkers. Uh, She wanted to use them for an upcoming fishing excursion. The barn loft where she said she looked revealed no footprints on the dusty floor, and it was August, so it was stifling hot in the loft. Remember, no air conditioning, no AC, no airflow. So nobody would really want to spend time up there, let alone spend more than a few minutes searching for an equipment piece that she wouldn't end up using for days. 
It's reported that investigators found cobwebs all over the loft, again suggesting that no one had been up there. Theories about a tall male intruder were considered, and one, quote, leading physician explained that, quote, hacking is almost a positive sign of a deed by a woman who is unconscious of what she's doing, end quote. Because, again, women are flowers. Yeah. So, I don't know, maybe a woman turned into a weed and then didn't know and turned back into a flower. I have thought about your question. I would be the flowers that grow on the cactuses. (gasps) Gorge, I love that metaphor. That's so you. Thanks. Oh, my God. I know. I was really thinking about it. Cacti, sorry. I'm a hydrangea. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You're just, like, so proud of that. Why? I don't know what's special about a hydrangea. Oh, my God. What? I don't. I'm not a botanist. They're, like, kind of high maintenance, but the, like, (laughs) the reward (laughs) is worth it. Like, once I bloom, like, I'm worth it, guys. And girls. Guys and girls. All y'all out there. You get to choose what your flower is, so that's what it is. Mm -hmm. A little woody, but I get some leaves. I don't know what that means for metaphor-wise, but (laughs) I love hydrangeas, so that's my favorite flower, and therefore I am a hydrangea. I get some leaves. (laughs) I get those leaves. Oh, that's funny. Hmm. Guys, what would your flower be? (laughs) (laughs) Just completely <laughs> taking a left turn. All of a sudden, we just started talk, talking about plants. <laughs> and so, any gardeners out there, I do have some questions. If you could DM me separately. <laughs> she is having issues. I am, yeah. Uh, unfortunate issues. Oh, man. Okay, so now we are starting the trial breakdown. Woohoo! Woot woot! On August 9th, an inquest into the Borden murders were held in the courtroom over police headquarters, which was closed to the public. Before criminal magistrate Josiah... Blaisdell, District Attorney Hosea Knowlton, questioned Lizzie Borden, Bridget Sullivan, a household guest who was John Morris, and others. During her four-hour examination, Lizzie was confused and gave answers that contradicted each other. Two days later, the inquest adjourned and police chief Hillard arrested Lizzie. I'm sorry. Every word is like a new hill. <laughs> I know. These words are so hard. I just I'm not great with names. I'm not great with names, guys. You know that already, right? The next day, on August 12th, Lizzie entered a plea of not guilty to the murder charges and was transported by rail car to the jail in Taunton, which was eight miles to the north of Fall River. Not the not too far, but no. different different town. On August 22nd and 23rd, Lizzie returned to a Fall River courtroom for her preliminary hearing, at the end of which Judge Josiah Blaisdell looked for probable cause and pronounced her probably guilty. (laughs) Probably guilty. Yeah, with probable cause. I don't know. (laughs) The judge then ordered her to face a grand jury and possible charges for the murder of her parents. On November 21st, 1892, the grand jury met. After first refusing to issue an indictment, the jury reconvened and heard new evidence from Alice Russell, the family friend who stayed with two Borden sisters is in the days following the murders. Russell told grand jurors about her visit the night before the murder and the conversation she had with Lizzie that night. She also testified that on August 7th, three days after the murders, she witnessed Lizzie burning a blue dress in their kitchen fireplace. Lizzie claimed that the dress was ruined with old paint, so she just decided to get rid of it. Coupled with the earlier testimony from Bridget Sullivan that Lizzie was wearing a blue dress on the morning of the murders, this evidence was enough to convince grand jurors to indict Lizzie for the murders of her parents. Russell's testimony was also enough to convince the Borden sisters to sever all ties with their old friend forever. Hmm. Burn that bridge. (laughs) 
on November 31st. And that dress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. On November 31st, 1892, Lizzie is issued an indictment for murder. So really, it sounds like she might not even gone to trial if it wasn't for Alice. Because this jury was like, they weren't going to indict her. And then they reconvened and they heard this new testimony from Alice. And then they were like, mm-hmm. eh, that sounds pretty sketchy. Let's go to trial. If Alice was a real friend, she wouldn't have said anything. It's I wouldn't true. say anything if I saw you burn a dress. You wouldn't? No, I really wouldn't. I wouldn't either. It actually is kind of weird. If they were really good friends. Well, I mean, she's under the perjury of law. So maybe she was just nervous. Maybe, but also, the tour guide said that it happened, the three girls were at the Borden's house, Emma, Lizzie, and Alice. After the murders. This is after the murders, um, a couple days after, three days after. And, like, Emma sees Lizzie burning her dress, and she doesn't really say anything, but then Alice comes down the stairs and sees Lizzie burning it, and she's Mm -hmm. like, Lizzie, why are you burning a dress right now? Like, this is three days after your parents were murdered. You really shouldn't do that. Matt murdered them. Like, why are you burning a dress? And then didn't she say that Lizzie, like, then, like, got out of view of the window? She was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do it in the view of the window. And, like, tuckered under the stove. And Yeah, because she was facing the stove. But the stove in that area, you can kind of see the front door. And they had police there at her house after the murders. Um, So they're like, no, the police can see you through the front door. So she (laughs) moves to the side of the stove. And is just like, "Eh, it's okay. Shimmies away. And then just, like, tucks the dress in the little fire. Yeah, and Alice was like, wow, you really shouldn't have done that. And Lizzie was like, well, then why did you let me? Which is a good point. Like, they just stood there and watched her burn a dress. Like, I mean, what are you going to do? I, I don't know. I don't know. Like, yell, help, cop, police. I don't know. If she was that afraid and she was going to testify, she should have, like, shouted at the police officer. Like, come in quick. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe she was nervous. Well, this is true. Maybe she was nervous that the police could see her and did see her doing that. And then they would have known that Alice saw it. So if Alice said oh. she didn't see it, then the police would be like, you did, you're guilty, you're going to jail now, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe. I could see that. And also, maybe they were, like, friends, but not, like, the best friends, like, you know what I mean? I think she was a nosy friend, honestly, because she just what, <laughs> decided. <laughs> yeah. I'm putting my own assumptions in, but okay. nosy friend to come stay with the sisters at their house. Like, wouldn't you just be like, you girls can stay, you have each other? No, she's like, I'm going to come here, I'm going to stay with you after, because I want to hear the scoop. Or she was just being a nice friend. No, I'm suspicious. <laughs> okay. Well, it wasn't the downfall because, spoiler alert, she wasn't found guilty. But it was a huge piece of testimony in the trial. So, yeah, they cut ties with her. That's not surprising. So, the trial itself of Lizzie Borden opened on June 5th of 1893 in the New Bedford Courthouse before a panel of 30 judges. A high-powered defense team, including Andrew Jennings and George Robinson, who was the former governor of Massachusetts, represented the defendant, while District Attorney Nolden and Thomas Moody argued the case for the prosecution. Despite the fact that fingerprint testing was becoming a commonplace in Europe at the time, the police were still wary of its reliability and refused to test for prints on the murder weapon, the hatchet. Why are we always behind in the times and here in the U.S.? Like, why would you be... Whatever. Always. Not even first in photos at the crime scene not first in photos not first in fingerprints not first to the moon we gotta step it up well i guess it's just a thing we came around so whatever we're good at seeing what other people do than deciding to do it better i guess yeah (laughs) why do it why create the wheel wait till someone else fails and then do it better yeah i guess so i guess we're kind of smart ish well still though it sucks like i am like salty that we didn't do fingerprinting because i feel like that could make or break this entire thing it could answer so many questions for sure. Because they found a hatchet, but they didn't do fingerprinting on it. 
whatever. So before a jury of 12 men, 12 white men with big mustaches, y'all, we saw pictures. <laughs> Very mustachioed <laughs> bunch. Mustachio bashio here. You literally. Moody opened the state's case. Moody, at one point, carelessly threw Lizzie's blue dress on the prosecution table during his speech, and it actually somehow, like, revealed the skulls of Andrew and Abby Borden that they had there. The sight of her parents' skulls, according to a newspaper account, caused Lizzie to fall into a faint that lasted for several minutes, quote, sending a thrill of excitement through awestruck spectators and causing unfeigned embarrassment and discomfort to penetrate the ranks of counsel. Haters say she faked it. Haters gonna say it's faked. <laughs> Although it probably was. Like, that's a little bit dramatic. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Andrew's skull was hacked in the front while Abby's was in the back. I think what it came down to was Abby had, like, 18 or 19 wax, from what they could tell. And then Andrew was about 10 more for a total of, like, 29 hacks. For most of the two hours of Moody's speech, Lizzie watched from behind a fan as the prosecutor described Lizzie as the only person having both the motive and opportunity to commit the double murders. He then pulled from a bag the head of the axe that he claimed Lizzie used to kill her parents. First of several witnesses for the state testified concerning events in and around the Borden home on the morning of August 4th, 1892, which is the morning the murders occurred. The most important of these witnesses is none other than 26-year-old Bridget Sullivan. She testifies that Lizzie was the only person she saw in the home at the time her parents were murdered, though she provided some consolation to the defense when she said that she had not witnessed during her, over her two years of service to the family signs of the rumored ugly relationship between Lizzie and her stepmother. She's quoted as saying, Everything was pleasant. Lizzie and her mother always spoke to each other. Other prosecution witnesses disputed Sullivan's assertion that all was fine between Lizzie and her stepmother. For example, Hannah Gifford, who was a who made a garment for Lizzie a few months before the murders, described a conversation in which Lizzie called her stepmother, quote, a mean, good-for-nothing thing, <laughs> and said, quote, I don't have much to do with her. I stay in my room most of the time. Sullivan also testified that Andrew and Abby Borden experienced stomach pains on the day before the murders and told jurors that at the presumed time of Abby's murder, Lizzie claimed she was washing outside windows. Sullivan testified that she opened the door for Andrew Borden after he returned home from his businesses and then described hearing Lizzie's cry for help a few minutes after 11 o'clock that morning. Several witnesses described seeing Andrew Borden at various points in town in the two hours before he returned home to his death. Household guest John Morse, age 60, described having breakfast in the Borden home on the morning of the morning of the murders and then leaving the house soon after that. The next set of witnesses described the events and conversations occurring after the discovery of the murders. Dr. Seabury Bowen, the Borden family physician, was summoned to the Borden residence by Lizzie in the late morning of August 4th. Mm, that's, I feel like we've heard two different things. He was either summoned by Lizzie or Bridget. Mm -hmm. The doctor recounted Lizzie's story about looking for lead sinkers in the barn and her contention that her father's troubles with his tenants probably had something to do with the murders, according to him. On cross-examination, Seabury agreed with the defense's suggestion that the morphine he prescribed for Lizzie might account for some of the confused and contradictory testimony 
she gave at the inquest following the murders. Um, yeah, I would say so. From the second the doctor entered the crime scene, he promptly administered Lizzie with morphine. Every day, up to and during the trial, she was administered morphine. That's quite a bit of morphine. <laughs> I guess at the time, this was just how they handled um, unruly women. Well, they said it was because she was, like, stressed and freaking out, obviously. So that was their way of helping her. The only way they knew, I guess. Adeline Churchill, a Borden neighbor and another important witness, remembered Lizzie wearing a light blue dress with a diamond figure on it, but did not recall seeing any blood spots on it. John Fleet, the assistant marshal of Fall River, recalled his interview with Lizzie shortly after the murders. He testified that Lizzie corrected him when he called her when he called Abby Borden her mother, saying she was not my mother, she was my stepmother. My mother died when I was a child. The most compelling testimony came again from Alice Russell. Russell described a visit from Lizzie the night before the murders in which she announced that she would soon be going on a vacation and felt, quote, that something is hanging over me. I cannot tell what it is, end quote. Then, according to Russell, after describing her parents' severe stomach sickness, which she had attributed to bad baker's bread, but the tour guide told us it was bad milk, so it was bad something. Something's bad food. Something's going sour. <laughs> Lizzie revealed, quote, I feel afraid something is going to happen. Explaining her feeling, Lizzie told Russell that, quote, she wanted to go to sleep with one eye open half the time for fear somebody might burn the house down or hurt her father because he was so discourteous to people. That's how I slept at that house. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> one eye open. Uh-huh. But that's episode two. Yeah. <laughs> well, part two. Turning his questioning to the Sunday after the murders, District Attorney Moody asked Russell about the dress burning incident. Russell recounted that when she asked Lizzie what was she was doing with the blue dress, she replied, quote, I am going to burn this old thing up. It is covered in paint, end quote. On cross-examination, defense attorney George Robinson attempted, through his questions, to suggest that a guilty person seeking to destroy incriminating evidence would be unlikely to do it in such an open fashion as Lizzie allegedly did. Russell also recounted a conversation with Lizzie about a note, which according to Lizzie's account, she received from a messenger on the morning of the murders, summoning her to visit a sick friend. Lizzie used the note to explain why she thought her mother had left the house, or stepmother, and therefore didn't think to look for her body. Correction, yeah. stepmother, please. She would have corrected me. <laughs> to look for her body after discovering her father's. Despite a thorough search of the Borden home, the alleged note was never found. Russell said she sarcastically suggested to Lizzie that her mother might have burned the note. Lizzie, according to Russell, replied, quote, Yes, she must have. Mm-hmm. A newspaper account of the prosecution case likened it to a, quote, pigeon shooting match in which District Attorney Moody kept flinging up the birds and defying his antagonist to hit them, while the ex-governor, Defense Attorney Robinson, constantly fired and often, but by no means always, wounded or brought them down. Robinson's performance impressed reporters with one writing, the ex-governor, quote, is certainly without equal in New York City as a cross-examiner, end quote. Robinson seemed ready to, quote, turn more or less to his own account. <laughs> Nearly every government witness, according to one trial reporter. Honestly, I could not keep up with that metaphor, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm lost about that, but... Is it ironic that they use a pigeon when the whole thing might have started with a pigeon? I don't think it is. I think they're trying to rub it in. Oh, okay, okay. All right, well, anyway, yeah, that was a terribly long metaphor. Yeah. I did not like it. 
The defense made its case using, for the most part, the state's own witnesses. Quote, has never, there has never, quote, there has never been a trial so full of surprises, wrote one reporter, covering the trial with such marvelous contradictions given by witnesses called for a common purpose. The defense kept hammering at the contradictory testimony of key prosecution witnesses. The defense also explored holes in the prosecution case. Where, the defense asked, is the handle from the broken axe that is the reported crime murder weapon? Where is it? Ah! Where is it? The state, Where is the, axe? the state had no answer. <laughs> yeah. The defense also exploited the government's own timeline, which allowed from 8 to 13 minutes between Andrew Borden's murder and Lizzie's call to Bridget Sullivan. Robinson tried to suggest the difficulty of washing blood off oneself, clothes, and murder weapon, and then hiding the murder weapon, all within that short spirit, short period of time. Mm-hmm. Also, there was some talk on like the internet about how it's really hard to change into the clothing of that time in a, such a short amount of time. Like mm-hmm. you almost like needed someone's help because there's so many layers and like corsets and shit. It was puffy. It was puffy as hell. It was so puffy. That's but then there poof. were also people that were like, no, that's not right. It didn't take a lot of time. So, uh, yeah. Um, but it all, it all ties into this big mystery. The decisive moment in the trial might have come when the three-judge panel, three-male judge panel, ruled that Lizzie Borden's inquest testimony, full of contradictions and implausible claims, could not be submitted into evidence by the prosecution. Um, so basically, you were saying that they, we think that the reason that they had to throw it out was that Lizzie Borden's attorney was not there, right? Um, so it couldn't be pros- it couldn't be submitted as evidence, which is a huge loss for the prosecution. Big L, big. They took a big L, but they bounced. They didn't bounce back. Actually, <laughs> they did not bounce back. They didn't. They just took it. Yeah. Um, but we have for you guys. They took it like years. wounded pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the, the metaphor is done. Chop it with an axe. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh, too soon, too soon. Not too soon. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been. I think it's, it's good. Been a minute. Okay. Um, we're gonna bless you guys right now with a few snippets of the questioning by District Attorney Hosea Nolan when he was questioning Lizzie Borden her inquest testimony. We're gonna do a little bit of a role play action. Everyone loves a good role play. Yeah. Okay, so who are you and who am I? We were going to flip a coin, right? Yeah, should we flip okay. a coin? Yeah, I think so, because we never fully decided. Okay. Okay, so I'm District Attorney We flipped Hosea. a coin. I'm Lizzie. Hey, dream come true. I'm District Attorney Hosea Knowlton. Um, dun, dun, dun. And this I'm is not the even tri- I'm not even going to try to do, like, an accent or anything. Nah, I'm not. It's I'm going to read it. Because this is honestly a lot, guys. Gear up, get comfy. This is a, a lot of snippets. But there is a lot of information, and you will see where she, like, twists and turns. It's interesting. It's also, some parts are kind of funny. You'll but see. keep in mind, she's dosed up she's morphined up like they dose her and i think people keep forgetting that because they're like i just contradicting she can't remember stuff and it's like she's on morphine yeah i definitely forgot but okay so my voice is my voice i'm the q my voice is my voice i'm lizzie give me your full name lizzie andrew borden is it lizzie or elizabeth lizzie you were so Christianed. I was so Christianed. <laughs> I, I don't know how much emphasis was on this. <laughs> what is your age, please? 32. Your mother is not living? No, sir. When did she die? She died when I was two and a half years old. What was your father's age? He was 70 next month. What was his whole name? Andrew Jackson Borden. And your stepmother, what is her whole name? Abby Durfee Borden. How long had your father been married to your stepmother? I think about 27 years. 
So Lizzie Borden's murder charge had a lot of moving parts here, but it always comes into question. Did money play a part? That was one of the biggest motives given for why Borden might have killed her father and stepmother. Although Andrew was wealthy, he was kind of frugal, um, which caused friction for both Lizzie and Emma, who still lived at home but were in their 30s. That's speculation. Kind of, yeah, speculation. But it's notoriously. But like probably. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Have you any idea how much your father was worth? No, sir. Have you ever heard him say? No, sir. Do you know something about his real estate? I know what real estate he owned, part of it. I don't know whether or not I know it all or not. Tell me what you know of. He owns two farms in Swansea, the place on 2nd Street and the A.J. Borden building, and corner and the land on South Main Street where the McManus is, where McManus is. And then a short time ago, he bought some real estate up further south that formerly, he said, belonged to a Mr. Birch. Did you ever deed him any property? He gave us, some time ago, Grandfather Borden's house on Ferry Street, and he bought that back from us some weeks ago. I don't know just how many. As near as you can recall. Well, I should say in June, but I'm not sure. What do you mean by bought it back? He bought it off us and gave us the money for it. How much was it? How much money? He gave us $5,000 for it. Did you know of your father making a will? No, sir, except I heard somebody say once that there was one several years ago. That is all I ever heard. Who did you hear say so? I think it was Mr. Morse. What Morse? Uncle John V. Morse. What did he say about it? Nothing except just that. Do you know of anybody that your father was on bad terms with? There was a man that came here, that came there, that he had trouble with. I don't know who the man was. When? I cannot locate the time exactly. It was within two weeks. That is, I don't know the date or day of the month. I did not see anything. I heard the bell ring and father went to the door and let him in. I did not hear anything from for some time except just the voices. Then I heard the man say, I would like to have that place. I would like to have that store. Father said, I am not willing to let your business go in there. And the man said, I thought with your reputation for liking money, you would let your store for anything. Father said, you are mistaken. Then they talked a while, and then their voices were louder, and I heard Father order him out and went to the front door with him. Have you any idea who that was? No, sir. I think it was a man from out of town because he said he was going home to see his partner. Have you had any efforts made to find him? We have had a detective. That is all I know. You have not found him? Not that I know of. Besides that, do you know of anybody that your father had bad feelings toward, or who had bad feelings toward your father? I know of one man who has not been friendly with him. They have not been friendly for years. Who? Mr. Hiram C. Harrington. What relation is he to him? <laughs> he is my father's brother-in-law. Your mother's brother? My father's only sister married Mr. Harrington. So, side note, another piece of this crime revolves around the relationship between Lizzie and her stepmother, Abby. Obviously, that's a huge part of the crime. And like we said, it is speculated that both Lizzie and Emma didn't like their father or his second wife very much. Again, speculation. Speculation. I spit a little. <laughs> Do you know of anybody that was on bad terms with your stepmother? No, sir. Or that your stepmother was on bad terms with? No, sir. Did you ever have any trouble with your stepmother? No, sir. Have you, within six months, had any words with her? No, sir. Within a year? No, sir. Within two years? I think not. When last that you know of? About five years ago. 
You have been on pleasant terms with your stepmother since then? Yes, sir. Cordial? It depends upon one's idea of cordiality, perhaps. According to your idea of cordiality? We were, f- we were friendly, very friendly. Cordial, according to your idea of cordiality. <laughs> quite so. What do you mean by quite so? Quite cordial. I do not mean the dearest of friends in the world, but very kindly feelings and pleasant. I do not know how to answer you any better than that. You did not regard her as your mother. Not exactly, no, although she came here when I was very young. Were your relations toward her that of daughter and mother? In some ways it was, and in some ways it was not. In what ways was it? I declined to answer. Why? Because I do not know how to answer it. In what ways was it not? I did not call her mother. What name did she go by? Mrs. Borden. When did you begin to call her Mrs. Borden? I should think five or six years ago. Before that time, you had called her mother? Yes, sir. What led to the change? The affair with her stepsister. So, that the affair was serious enough to have you change from her, from calling her mother, do you mean? I did not choose to call her mother. Have you ever called her mother since? Yes, occasionally. To her face, I mean. Yes. Often? No, sir. Seldom? Seldom. Your usual address was Mrs. Borden? Yes, sir. In what respects were the relations between you and her, that of mother and daughter, besides not calling her mother? I don't know that any of the relations were changed. I had never been to her as a mother in many ways. I always went to my sister because she was older and had the care of me after my mother died. In what respects were your relations between you and her, that of mother and daughter? That is the same question you asked before. I can't answer you any better now than I did before. You did not say before you could not answer, but that you declined to answer. I declined to answer because I did not know what to say. That is the only reason? Yes, sir. You called your father father? Always. Were your father and mother happily united? Why, I don't know, but that they were. Why do you hesitate? Because I don't know, but that they were, and I am telling the truth as nearly as I know. Do you mean me to understand that they were happy entirely or not? So far as I know, they were. Why did you hesitate then? I'm, like, getting annoyed for her. I know. I'm like, shut up. I know, right? It's just the same question over and over. Like, girl, take a break. She was probably breathing because she was on morphine. Yeah, literally. Why did you hesitate then? Because I did not know how to answer you any better than what came into my mind. I was trying to think if I was telling it as I should, that's all. Do you have any difficulty in telling it as you should? Any difficulty in answering my questions? Some of your questions I have difficulty answering because I don't know just how you mean them. Did you ever know of any difficulty between her and your father? No, sir. Did he seem to be affectionate? I think so. As man and woman who are married ought to be? So far as I have ever had any chance of judging. What dress did you wear the day they were killed? I had on a navy blue, sort of a bengaline silk skirt with a navy blue blouse. In the afternoon, they thought I had better change it. I put on a pink wrapper. Did you change your clothing before the afternoon? No, sir. You dressed in the morning, as you have described, and kept that clothing on until afternoon? Yes, sir. When did Morse come there first? I don't mean this visit. I mean as a visitor, John V. Morse. Do you mean this day that he came and stayed all night? No. Was this visit the first to your house? He has been in the East a year or more. Since he has been in the East, has he been in the habit of coming to your house? Yes. Came in any time he wanted to. Before that. Had he been at your house before he came east? Yes, he has been here. If you remember the winter that that river was frozen over and they went across, 
He was here that winter some 14 years ago, was it not? I am not answering questions, but asking them. I don't remember the date. He was here that winter. Has he been here since? He has been here once since. I don't know whether he has or not since. How many times this year has he been at your house? None at all to speak of. Nothing more than a night or two at a time. How often did he come to spend a night or two? Really, I don't know. I am away so much myself. Your last answer is that you don't know how much he had been here because you had been away yourself so much. Yes. Do I understand you to say that his last visit before this one was 14 years ago? No. He has been here once between the two. How long ago was that? I don't know. Give me your best remembrance. Five or six years? Perhaps six? Where was your sister, Emma, that day? What day? The day your father and Mrs. Borden were killed. She had been in Fairhaven. Had you written to her? Yes, sir. When was the last time you wrote to her? Thursday morning, and my father mailed the letter for me. Did she get it at Fairhaven? No, sir. It was sent back. She did not get it at Fairhaven, for we telegraphed for her, and she got home here Thursday afternoon, and the letter was sent back to this post office. How long had she been in Fairhaven? Just two weeks to the day. So the questioning about that day of the murder is pretty repetitive and long. Mm -hmm. We cut it. We left out the longer parts because they really do. He goes back and forth. He literally, like, just does the whole interview all over again to see if he can trick her up, obviously. So if you want to read the longer parts, go ahead. You can form your own opinion. We took it out because we'd be here for, like, another hour. I mean, this is already long enough. I I feel for you. If you're still here, woo, you the real one. Mm -hmm. It does get a little bit more interesting, though, so stay tuned. Yeah. Keep listening. Right now. Yeah. Okay. Question. Were the breakfast things put away when you got down? Answer. Everything except the (laughs) coffee pot. I'm not sure whether that was on the stove or not. What was the next thing that happened after you got down? Maggie went out of doors to wash the windows, and Father came out into the kitchen and said he did not know whether he would go down to the post office or not. And then I sprinkled some handkerchiefs to iron. Tell us again what time you came downstairs. It was a little before nine, I should say. About quarter? I don't know. Did your father go downtown? He went down later. What were you doing when he started away? I was in the dining room, I think. Yes, I had just commenced, I think, to iron. It may seem a foolish question. How much of an ironing did you have? I only had about eight or ten of my best handkerchiefs. Did you let your father out? No, sir. He went out himself. Did you fasten the door behind him? No, sir. Did she go out after a brush before your father went away? I think so. Did you say anything to Maggie? I did not. Did you speak to her? I think I told her I did not want any breakfast. You do not remember of talking about washing the windows? I don't remember whether I did or not. I don't remember it. Uh, yes, I remember. Yes, I asked her to shut the parlor blinds when she got through because the sun was so hot. How long was your father gone? I don't know that. Where were you when he returned? I was down in the kitchen. What doing? Reading an old magazine that had been left in the cupboard. An old Harper's magazine. Had you got through ironing? No, sir. Had you stopped ironing? Stopped for the flats. Were you waiting for them to be hot? Yes, sir. Was there a fire in the stove? Yes, sir. When your father went away, you were ironing then? I had not commenced, but I was getting the little ironing board from the flannel. Are you sure you were in the kitchen when your father returned? I am not sure whether I was there or in the dining room. Did you go back to your room before your father returned? I think I did carry up some clean clothes. Did you stay there? No, sir. Then you went upstairs when your father came to the house on his return. I think I was. How long had you been up there? I had only been upstairs long enough to take the clothes up and baste the little loop on the sleeve. I don't think I had been up there over five minutes. Was Maggie still engaged in washing windows when your father got back? I don't know. 
You remember, Miss Borden, I will call to your attention to it so as to see if I have any misunderstanding, not for the purpose of confusing you. You remember that you told me several times that you were downstairs and not upstairs when your father came home. You have forgotten, perhaps? I don't know what I have said. I have answered so many questions, and I am so confused. I don't know one thing from another. I'm telling you just as nearly as I know how. Calling your attention to what you said about that a few minutes ago, and now again to the circumstances, you have said you were upstairs when the bell rang and were on the stairs when Maggie let your father in, which now is your recollection of the true statement of the matter, that you were downstairs when the bell rang and your father came in. I think I was downstairs in the kitchen. And then you were not upstairs. I think I was not because I went up almost immediately as soon as I went down and then came down again and stayed down. I now call your attention to the fact that you had specifically told me you had gone upstairs and had been there about five minutes when the bell rang and that you were on your way down and on the stairs when Maggie let your father in that day. I can only picture this guy as like the biggest asshole. Oh yeah, yeah like yelling, spitting, yeah, like yeah. pointing. This poor girl's on morphine, like eyes half open. Yeah, like, uh... and her father's dead. Yeah. Yes, I said that. And then I said I did not know whether I was on the stairs or in the kitchen. Now how will you have it? I think, as nearly as I know, I think I was in the kitchen. How long was your father gone? I don't know, sir. Not very long. An hour? I should not think so. Will you give me the best story you can, so far as your recollection serves you, of your time while he was gone? I sprinkled my handkerchiefs and got my ironing board and took them in the dining room. I took the ironing board in the dining room and left the handkerchiefs in the kitchen, on the table, and whether I ate any cookies or not, I don't remember. <laughs> True. Then I sat down, looking at the magazine, waiting for the flats to heat. Then I went in the sitting room and got the Providence Journal and took that into the kitchen. I don't recollect of doing anything else. Which did you read first, the journal or the magazine? The magazine. You told me you were reading the magazine when your father came back? I said in the kitchen, yes. Was that so? Yes, I took the journal out to read and had not read it. It had I had it near me. You said a minute or two ago you read the magazine a while and then went and got the journal and took it out to read. I did, but I did not read it. I tried my flats then. And then went back to reading the magazine. I took up the magazine again, yes. When did you see when did you last see your mother? I did not see her after I went down in the morning and she was dusting the dining room. Where did you or she go then? I don't know where she went. I know where I was. Did you or she leave the dining room first? I think I did. I left her in the dining room. You never saw her or heard her afterwards? No, sir. Did she say anything about making the bed? She said she had been up and made the bed up fresh and had dusted the room and left it all in order. She was going to put some fresh pillow slips on the small pillows in the, at the foot of the bed and was going to close the room because she was going to have company on Monday and she wanted everything in order. How long would it take to put on pillow slips? About two minutes. Can you give me any suggestion as to what occupied her when she was up there, when she was struck dead? I don't know of anything except she had some cotton cloth pillowcases up there, and she said she was going to commence work on them. That is all I know. And the sewing machine was up there. She was found a little after 11 in the spare room. If she had gone to her own room, she must have gone through the kitchen and up the back stairs, and subsequently have gone down and gone back again. Yes, sir. Have you any reason to suppose you would not have seen her if she had spent any portion of the time in her room or downstairs? There's no reason why I should see not to have seen her if she had been down there. 
Except when I first came downstairs for two or three minutes, I went down cellar to the water closet. I ask again, perhaps you have answered all you care to. What explanation can you give, can you suggest, as to what she was doing from the time she said she had got the work all done in the spare room until 11 o'clock? I suppose she went up and made her own bed. That would be in the back part? Yes, sir. She would have had to go by you twice to do that. Unless she went when I was in my room that few minutes. That would not be enough time for her to go and make her bed and then come back again. Sometimes she stayed up longer and sometimes shorter. I don't know. Otherwise than that, she would have had to go in your sight. I should have to have seen her once. I don't know what I... I don't know that I would need to have seen her more than once. You did not see her at all? No, sir. Not after the dining room. What explanation can you suggest as to the whereabouts of your mother from the time you saw her in the dining room and she said her work in the spare room was all done until 11 o'clock? I don't know. I think she went back into the spare room and whether she came back again or not, I don't know. That has always been a mystery. Can you think of anything she could have been doing in the spare room? Yes, sir. I knew what she used to do sometimes. Just kidding. (laughs) She kept her best cape she wore on the street in there, and she used occasionally to go up there to get it and to take it into her room. She kept a great deal in the guest room drawers. She She used to go up there and get things and put things. She used those drawers for her own use. That connects her with her own room again, to reach which she had to go downstairs and come up again. Yes. Assuming that she did not go into her own room, I understand you to say she could not have gone to her own room without your seeing her. (laughs) I feel like this is definitely really hard for everyone to follow that doesn't know the layout of the house. But just keep in mind, it's a weird house. So, like, for her to go to certain rooms, she has to, like, go upstairs and downstairs a bunch of times. Right, because their rooms are all connected again. Right, so I think he's trying to, like, get that in order. Um, Sorry, she said she could while I was down cellar. When you found your father dead, you supposed your mother had gone? I did not know. I said to the people who came in, I don't know whether Mrs. Borden is out or in. I wish you would see if she is in her room. Did she tell you where she was going? No, sir. Did she tell you who the note was from? No, sir. Did you ever see the note? No, sir. Do you know where it is now? No, sir. She said she was going out that morning? Yes, sir. Okay, so um, this is a lot. But this line of questioning goes on for a pretty long time. There's more that we took out, but pretty much all the questions are repeated once again, and Lizzie Borden's answers are all different the second time. What she was doing in the house changes, where she was in the house changes, and now her timeline kind of shifts all by an hour. Let's jump back in. Let's jump back in. It's just one more part, guys. Yeah. How long was your father in the house before you found him killed? I don't know exactly, because I went out to the barn. I don't know what time he came home. I don't think he had been home more than 15 or 20 minutes. I am not sure. When you went out to the barn, where did you leave your father? He had laid down on the living room lounge, taken off his shoes and put on his slippers and taken off his coat and put on the reefer. I asked him if he wanted the windows left that way. Where did you leave him? On the sofa. Was he asleep? No, sir. Was he reading? No, sir. What was the last thing you said to him? I asked him if he wanted the window left that way. Then I went into the kitchen and from there to the barn. How long did you remain there? I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes. What doing? Trying to find a lead for a sinker. What made you think there would be a lead for a sinker up there? Because there was some there. Miss Borden, I am trying in good faith to get all the doings of that morning. Of yourself and Miss Borden, and I have not succeeded in doing it. Do you desire to give me any information or not? I don't know it. I don't know what your name is. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't know why that's relevant, but I kind of like it. It's probably because I don't even she know your goddamn <laughs> name. <laughs> because she doesn't know. Like, she's on morphine. Yeah. Mask. It is certain beyond reasonable doubt she was engaged in washing the windows in the dining room or sitting room when your father came home. Do you mean to say you know nothing of either of those operations? I knew she washed the windows outside. That is, she told me so. She did not wash the windows in the kitchen because I was in the kitchen most of the time. The dining room and sitting room, I said. I don't know. Can you give me any information on how it happened at that particular time? You should go into the chamber of the barn to find a sinker to go to Marion with to fish the next Monday. I was going to finish my ironing. My flats were not hot. I said to myself, I will go and try to find that sinker. Perhaps by the time I get back, the flats will be hot. That is the only reason. Had you any apparatus for fishing at all? Yes, over there. What made you think there were no sinkers at the farm on your lines? Because some time ago when I was there, I had none. How long since you used the fish lines? Five years, perhaps? Was going to go fishing the next Monday, were you? I don't know that we should go fishing Monday. Going to the place to go fishing Monday? Yes, sir. This was Thursday, and you had no idea of using any fishing apparatus before the next Monday? No, sir. You had no fishing apparatus you were proposing to use the next Monday until then? No, sir. Not until I bought it. Had you started to buy anything? No, sir. The first thing in preparation for your fishing trip the next Monday was to go to the loft of the barn to find some old sinkers to put on some hooks and lines that you had not then bought. I thought if I found no sinkers, I would have to buy the sinkers when I bought the lines. You thought you would be saving something by hunting in the loft of the barn before you went to see whether you should need them or not. I thought I would find out whether there were any sinkers before I bought the lines. And if there was, I should not have to buy any sinkers. If there were some, I should only have to buy the lines and the hooks. You began the collection of your fishing apparatus by searching for the sinkers in the barn. Yes, sir. I don't know why he can't get this through his head. <laughs> I think he's just trying to try To look in that box that you have described, the size of on the bench, and put down the curtain, and then get out as soon as you conveniently could, would you say you were occupied in that business 20 minutes? I think so, because I did not look at that box when I first went up. What did you do? I ate my pears. Stood there looking out the window, eating the pears. I should think so. How many did you eat? Three, I think. You were feeling better than you did in the morning. Better than I did the night before. You were feeling better than you were in the morning. I felt better in the morning than I did the night before. That is not what I asked you. You were then, when you were in that hayloft, looking out the window, eating three pears, feeling better, were you not, than you were in the morning when you could not eat any breakfast. I never eat any breakfast. You did not answer my question, and you will, if I have to put it, all day. Were you then, when you were eating those three pears in that hot loft, looking out that closed window? Feeling better than you were in the morning when you ate no breakfast. I was feeling well enough to eat the pears. <laughs> were you feeling better than you were when you told your mother you did not care for any dinner? No, sir. I felt about the same. Well enough to eat pears, but not well enough to eat anything for dinner? She asked me if I wanted any meat. I ask you why you should select that place, which was the only place which would put you out of sight of the house, to eat those three pears in. I cannot tell you any reason. You observe that fact, do you not? You have put yourself in the only place, perhaps, where it would be impossible for you to see a person going into the house. Yes, sir. I should have seen them from that front window. From anywhere in the yard? No, sir. Not unless from the end of the barn. Ordinarily, in the yard, you could see them, and in the kitchen where you had been, you could have seen them. 
I don't think I understand. When you were in the kitchen, you could see the persons who came in at the back door. Yes, sir. I asked you again to explain to me why you took those pears from the pear tree. I did not take them from the pear tree. From the ground, wherever you took them from. <laughs> I thank you for correcting me. You're welcome. Going into the barn, going upstairs into the hottest place in the barn, in the rear of the barn, the hottest place, and there standing and eating those pears that morning. I beg your pardon. I was not in the <laughs> rear of the barn. I was in the other end of the barn that faced the street. Where you could see anyone coming into your house? Yes, sir. You now say that you were eating the pears. You could see the back door. Yes, sir. So nobody could come in at that time without you seeing them. I don't see how they could. After you got done eating your pears, you began your search? Yes, sir. Then you did not see into the house? No, sir, because the bench is at the other end. Now, I have asked you over and over again, and will continue the inquiry whether anything you did at the bench would occupy more than three minutes. Yes, I think it would, because I pulled over quite a lot of boards in looking. Taking all that, what is the amount of time you think occupied in looking for that piece of lead which you did not find? Well, I should think perhaps I was ten minutes. Looking over those old things? Yes, sir, on the bench. Now, can you explain why you were ten minutes doing it? No, only that I can't do anything in a minute. When you came down from the barn, what did you do then? Came into the kitchen. What did you do then? I went into the dining room and laid down my hat. What did you do then? I opened the sitting room door and went into the sitting room, or pushed it open. It was not latched. What did you do then? I found my father and rushed to the foot of the stairs. What were you going into the sitting room for? To go upstairs. What for? To sit down. What had become of the ironing? The fire had gone out. I thought you went out because the fire was not hot enough to heat the flats. I thought it would burn, but the fire had not caught from the few sparks. So you gave up the ironing and was going upstairs? Yes, sir. I thought I would wait till Maggie got dinner and then heat the flats again. When you saw your father, where was he? On the sofa. What was his position? Lying down. Describe anything else you noticed at the time. I did not notice anything else. I was so frightened and horrified. I ran to the foot of the stairs and called Maggie. Did you notice that he had been cut? Yes, that is what made me afraid. Did you notice that he was dead? I didn't know whether he was dead or not. Did you make any search for your mother? No, sir. Why not? I thought she was out of the house. I thought she had gone out. I called Maggie to go to Dr. Bowen's. When they came in, I said, I don't know where Mrs. Borden is. I thought she had gone out. You made no effort to find your mother at all? No, sir. Who did you send Maggie for? Dr. Bowen. She came back and said Dr. Bowen was not there. What did you tell Maggie? I told her he was hurt. When you first told her, I says, go for Dr. Bowen as soon as you can. I think father is hurt. Did you then know that he was dead? No, sir. You saw him? Yes, sir. You went into the room? No, sir. Looked in at the door? I opened the door and rushed back. Saw his face? No, I did not see his face because he was all covered with blood. You saw where the face was bleeding? Yes, sir. So at this point, the questions about her father just make Lizzie so overcome with emotions. Questioning then continues about what Abby Borden might have been doing in the morning before her alleged rush out of the house, but nothing's really clear. She was in the guest room supposedly putting things away, changing the pillow slips, which I guess are just pillowcases, uh, whatever. Lizzie speculates that she may have been sewing, but there was no noise throughout the house. And then the questions and answers throughout the whole interview are unclear. And like aggravating. Yeah. Okay. We lied. There's just one more segment, but it's really, really small. Hmm. And then that's the end. Yeah. Okay. Did you have any occasion to use the axe or hatchet? No, sir. 
Did you know where they were? I knew there was one old axe down cellar. That is all I knew. Did you know anything about a hatchet down cellar? No, sir. Where was the old axe down cellar? The last time I saw it, it was stuck in the old chopping block. Was that the only axe or hatchet down cellar? It was all I knew about. When was the last time you knew of it? When our father came to chop wood. When was that? I think a year ago last winter. I think there was so much wood on hand he did not come last winter. Do you know of anything that would occasion the use of an axe or hatchet? No, sir. Do you know of anything that would occasion the getting of blood on an axe or hatchet down cellar? No, sir. I did not say there was, but assuming an axe or hatchet was found down cellar with blood on it? No, sir. Do you know whether there was a hatchet down there before this murder? I don't know. You are uh, you are not able to say your father did not own a hatchet. I don't know whether he did or not. Did you know there was found at the foot of the stairs a hatchet and axe? No, sir, I did not. Assume that is so. Can you give me an explanation of how they came there? No, sir. Assume they had blood on them. Can you give me any occasion for there being blood on them? No, sir. Can you tell me of the killing of any animal or any other operation that would have led to their being cast there with blood on them? No, sir. He killed some pigeons in the barn last May or June. With what? I don't know, but I thought he wrung their necks. What made you think so? I think he said so. Did anything else make you think so? All but three or four had their heads on. That is what made me think so. Did all of them come into the house? I think so. Those that came into the house were all headless? Two or three had them on. Were there any with heads off? Yes, sir. Cut or twisted off? I don't know which. How did it look? I don't know. Their heads were gone. That is all. Did you tell anybody they looked as though they were twisted off? I don't remember whether I did or not. The skin, I think, was very tender. I said, why are these heads off? I think I remember of telling somebody that he had twisted them off. Did they look as though they were cut off? I don't know. I did not look at that particularly. Is there anything else besides that that would lead, in your opinion, so as far as you can remember, to the finding of instruments in the cellar with blood on them? I know of nothing else that was done. So now Judge Blaisdell cuts in and says, Was there any effort made by the witness to notify Mrs. Borden of the fact that Mr. Borden was found? And then another question by Norlton, they don't give her time to answer, and said, Did you make any effort to notify Mrs. Borden of your father being killed? No, sir. When I found him, I rushed right to the foot of the stairs for Maggie. I supposed Mrs. Borden was out. I did not think anything about her at the time. I was so... At any time, did you say anything about her to anybody? No, sir. To the effect that she was out? I told father when he came in. After your father was killed? No, sir. Did you say you thought she was upstairs? No, sir. Did you suggest to anybody to search upstairs? I said, I don't know where Mrs. Borden is. That is all I said. You did not suggest that any search be made for her? No, sir. You did not make any yourself? No, sir. I want you to give me all that you did by way of word or deed, to see whether your mother was dead or not, when you found your father was dead. I did not do anything except what I said to Mrs. Churchill. I said to her, I don't know where Mrs. Borden is. I think she is out, but I wish you would look. You did ask her to look. I said that to Mrs. Churchill. Hearing adjourned. So Lizzie Borden's actually recalled the, uh, August 11th mm-hmm. with just like a shorter part. Um, but this is where we stop part one of Lizzie Borden. Thank God. My butt is numb. Oh, my God. Same. same. Um, we'll pick it back up yes. on part two the following week.
Guys, stay tuned. It's going to be a great part two. Season finale, baby. Part two. It's full of conspiracy. It's full of who done it, who did it, what done it. What, what did happened? It? Full of blood, full of hatchets, full of Lizzie. We've got tons of paranormal experiences. Yes. And we will tell you about our own adventure in the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast. <laughs> Again, now's a good time to book your trip. We are going to go book a trip to the beach because Ooh. it's so hot. Yeah, we are. Goodbye. Peace out. See you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.